0: You take out your Bibles. Open the Book of Matthew, Matthew chapter five. Let's pray. Father, as always, we are grateful for your Word. We ask that you grant us understanding. The Father, we may think well and understand those things you've given to us. The Father, we may live well for you. We do thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So the question we should ask ourselves immediately is why on earth would Jesus say that? Why would Jesus ask them this question? Why, why does he think that they would be thinking that he has come to do away with the law? I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a teacher, he's viewed by many, even though he's not technically a rabbi, they would view him that way. Uh, they've, they've come to hear his teaching, and yet apparently there's a rumor that's starting, or he knows it's going to start, that, that he's speaking against the law. Now when he says the law... He is speaking specifically of the law of Moses. So the rumor will go around that he was trying to do away with it. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to just kind of of take a pause and just kind of look at the law. So the main thing I want to get across is going to be this. The law of God itself, that law of God is never done away with. But the law of God is communicated in different ways at different times. So we need to so we need to make sure we have that understanding correct when we read through the Word of God so we don't misunderstand what's being said in certain places at certain times. See, what happened with the law here during the time of Jesus is that the law had ended up becoming in the minds of many, not everyone, but in many, that the idea was that you keep the law of God to earn your salvation. Now, that's basically kind of what was going on. You, you know, kept the law so you could be righteous uh, you would point out to your children certain Pharisees, maybe certain Sadducees, and said, I want you to be like them. These individuals are truly righteous. These individuals are are, are showing righteous, revealing righteousness. And, but Jesus was very much aware of the corruption that was in their hearts, and that they weren't really keeping the law like they said they were, because they misunderstood the law. They misunderstood the law. They misunderstood what it meant. They misunderstood what it was for. And so as a result of that, it does sound like, and we'll see some examples of this, where it sounds like he's against the law. But it becomes clear that he's not against the law. But again, we want to keep in mind, I'll try to make sure it's clear as we as we move through uh, the book of Matthew, that again, he's speaking of the law of Moses, The people are under the law of Moses, that they're under the, the covenant. Uh, there's the Abrahamic covenant, there's the Mosaic covenant, which was added to the Abrahamic covenant and the basic idea of the Mosaic covenant was you obey the law of Moses God blesses you as a nation you disobey the law of Moses God curses you as a nation that's that's, that's the simple process that they were to follow and that's laid out for them uh, early on in the Old Testament and of course the histories fill with times when they would not just drift sometimes sprint away from the law of God or from the law of Moses and then God would bring another nation to come into to discipline them, to punish them, and they would be in bondage, and then they would kind of come to their senses and they would they would repent and they would seek God's mercy and God would deliver them and things would be okay for a while and then boom, right back again. And they and they would be punished by God and, and by the, some other wicked nation and they would suffer greatly, sometimes for hundreds of years, and then they would kind of wake up, you know, because through all of that they had they had the law of Moses, and they would wake up. And and recognize what they had done as a nation, and they would repent, and they would seek God's mercy, and God would be merciful, and he would deliver them, and the process would start all over again. Now, through all of that, there was always a remnant. There was a a small percentage of Jewish people who were consistent in the way they lived. They they weren't following the path of the nation. They were seeking to live in, in righteousness and follow the law of God. Now, none of them were able to follow the law perfectly. And we'll talk a little bit about the purpose of the law as we kind of move our way through this. But we want to make sure we have a good understanding. So, uh, even if I, if I don't always make it clear, we do want to remember that, number one, the law of God will never be done away with. The law of Moses will be. We're not under the law of Moses. Now, we are under the law of Christ. The law of Christ is, is throughout the New Testament. There are many commands from the law of Moses that are repeated in the law of Christ. And we will follow them and and obey them. But there are also some that are just simply ignored and not repeated. We're not under that. We are not Israel. Uh, We are the church of Jesus Christ. The the covenant of Moses was made with the nation of Israel. And God expressed his righteousness and his demands upon them uh, in the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law was always viewed in the singular Right? So you'll never, you'll never hear it called the Mosaic Laws. It's always the Mosaic Law. That's important. That's not trivial. There are 613 commands in the Law of Moses. But the Law of Moses is seen as singular. And we, we know that because we've, we've read the Scripture uh, where it says that if you break the law in one point, you're guilty of breaking the whole law. Well, why is it? Well, because it's basically one measuring stick. It doesn't matter where you break it. Or right, if you have a yardstick, if you break it at the one-inch mark, or you break it in the middle, you've broken it. And so that's the standard. This is God's standard. It's that yardstick. It's one standard. All these laws communicate and make up that standard. You break it, you've broken the law of Moses. And you're, you're guilty. And so we want to keep that in mind um, as we work our way through this. So again, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are not the law of Moses. They're part of the law of Moses. The law of Moses, again, is just one unit. There are many you'll read, and and there are many books written this way, where the law of Moses is divided into three parts. Now, God didn't divide it up that way. Man did. Now, it's not wrong to do that. It helps us to understand. When we look at the law of Moses, you see that there's moral laws, and there's civil laws, and there are ceremonial laws. You know, all the laws about Sacrifice and how you have to prepare the goat, the bull, whatever it happens to be, and, and there's different sacrifices for different things. All right, so the, all those are the, are the various rituals. And so there are some who then they use that, they'll divide the law of Moses and they say, Well, we're no longer under the, the, the rituals of that, but we're still under the moral law. Well, no, we're not under the law of Moses, it's been done away with. And we'll see that, I think, really very clearly as we move along. So again, the Bible never divides the law of God uh, or the law of Moses. The law of Moses is always spoken of as a whole, so you take all of it or you reject all of it. You can't just pick and choose. I want to read you a a quote from an article I found on on a Nine Marks uh, website. It's an article (laughs) written by a pastor, and he says this, When the New Testament speaks of God's law, it almost always refers to Moses' law or the law covenant. This law is one expression of God's eternal law, which grows out of his unchanging righteous character. The eternal law manifests itself in different institutional and covenantal forms through the timeline of redemptive history. Indeed, those institutional and covenantal changes mark off one era of redemptive history from another. So what does all that mean? Well, an example. God commanded the first couple, Adam and Eve, not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Right? That was the outworking of, of God's law. That reveals the outworking of, of his eternal law at that moment. But it doesn't directly bind us today. In fact, God gave laws to Noah. He gave commands to Abraham. He gave commands to the Israelites, known as the Mosaic Law, after delivering them from the bondage of Egypt. So what we don't say is, well, since God's law is eternal, let's just apply the garden command directly to us. Well, of course, the knowledge of, of good and evil, is not, the tree is not even here anymore. Uh, but we don't go around saying that. We don't go around saying that we need to follow the commands that God gave to Noah and build a boat. All right, we all would recognize immediately that the, the, the context, that it was very specific, a right, very specific reason why all those things were given. So... What we need to do then is, I guess you would say, it's the tough work of figuring out how or what sense the law of God applies to us and how it's revealed. Remember that, again, when it comes to the Bible, what some people want is they just want an easy understanding. We, I you know, like someone would say, well, just look, just explain to me the Bible in about five minutes. Now, we can, in a sense, because we all know that it points to Christ and the gospel, so we can we not give them that. But along the way, we know that's never going to be enough. You, you, don't, you don't read a, a summation of the Bible and say, oh, yeah, I got it. I know the whole Bible. You, you don't know anything. Uh, you just know a summary of the Bible. So when it comes to the truths of the Word of God, dealing with complicated matters and complicated people, uh, it's, not going to be, it's not going to be uncomplicated. So it doesn't mean that it's confusing, though it can be if we're not studying it and thinking about it the way that we ought to. But everything is not just readily apparent. We have to examine it, think about it, talk about it, study it. And even with that, there are still several things in the Bible that we're not really all that clear on. We're fairly clear, but we're still not really clear or exact on certain things or meanings. The Mosaic Law, as we know from Romans, was never a means of justification before God. Salvation has always been by faith alone in God and his promises. So when we believe the gospel, what are we believing? We're believing the promises of God in Christ. Who Christ did, what he did, what he accomplished on the cross, that's a promise of God. God is promising to forgive you of your sins if you put your faith and trust in Christ. I'm trusting in that promise. God said that he would give me eternal life. If I trust in Jesus Christ, if I believe in who he is, what he's done, his death, burial, and resurrection, I'm trusting in his promise. And when you go from Genesis to Revelation, you'll find that that's how salvation was always brought about. When it comes to Abraham, Abraham did not know the gospel as we know the gospel, but God had made him promises. He trusted what God said. He put his trust in what God said and followed what he said. And as the scripture says, when you read it in Romans, God accounted to him, his belief and his obedience as righteousness not that he had not because he worked for that but because he just trusted what God said and his obedience revealed that he was trusting God you can see it pretty easily when God said get up from where you are i'm going to show you a place where you need to live what did abraham do he got up and he moved and he started to go that's what he did and so that's the idea there over time Then when it comes to the law of Moses, the law of Moses, I already said, had become fairly perverted uh, in the land of Israel. Perverted in the sense that they thought that, you know, mankind thought that he could earn his salvation before God. And so Jesus was definitely preaching against that. In fact, he was also letting them know that even though they thought they were obeying the law, they still had missed it. Because they had a shallow view and a shallow understanding of the law and its requirements. But we'll see that as we continue our way through Matthew. The main thing is to make sure we have a good sense of, again, the law of Moses and the law of God. Uh, I often talk about when it comes to how you and I are under the law, we are under the law of Christ. We're not under the law of Moses. There's, There's a very distinctive difference there between those two. So I would say then that when you look at the Bible... The Bible repudiates, or at least renders, the law of Moses as being inoperative. Okay, it's no longer functioning in one sense, and we'll 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 make that clear over the next few moments. So it's a written code. God did call Israel to holiness. Let me read to you from the Book of Leviticus, chapter twenty, verse twenty-six. God said, "You shall be holy to me, for I am the for I the Lord am holy." And have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. But we know, even though God called them to that, what was Israel? Israel was stubborn, rebellious, they were unbelieving. And that would result in the old covenant's destructive end. Deuteronomy chapter 31, beginning in verse 16. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured, and many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us. And I will surely hide my face in that day, because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. All right, so... God had given them the law. Again, he said he would bless them for obedience. He would curse them for disobedience. And so here he is. He talks to Moses. Moses is about to die. He says, I just want you to know when you die, this is what they're going to do. And this is what I'm going to do. But you notice how they're able to figure out why all those evil things were happening. What does it say? They will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us. They will recognize that this is divine retribution that's taking place. They're not saying, I just can't believe what a string, this string of bad luck we've had now for 200 years. All right, that's not what they're saying. They know what this is. It's very similar to in Revelation uh, during the end times when there's a lot of catastrophic events happening on the earth. There's a portion there where people are running to the mountains. And they're basically calling on the mountains to hide them. And they're calling on the mountains to hide them from the face of the Lamb who sits on the throne. They are aware that all of the catastrophes that are taking place on the earth are not just because of climate change. They are very much aware that this is from God. And so they are, of course, notice they're not repenting. They're just trying to hide from that. But, but there's a clear understanding of what's, what, what is taking place. Paul noted that the Mosaic Law, or the Mosaic Law Covenant, bore a ministry of death and condemnation. Again, he says the law is holy, but the law is not of faith, meaning that the age of the Mosaic administration was characterized not by faith, but by unbelief. Again, remember, how did you know that an Israelite was, had faith in God? By his obedience. Okay, we would see that in our lives today, would we not? How do we know that our faith in God is substantive or is real? By our obedience, if you and I did not follow the commands of the New Testament yet claim to be a Christian, we would say there's a major disconnect there. Well, why don't you go to church? Well, I don't go, but I'm still a Christian. Well, why aren't you faithful to your wife? Well, you know we have problems. You know how it is, but I'm still a Christian. Well, I mean you just can go on with a list of things. It's it, it doesn't make any sense. So obedience then is not we're not earning our salvation. We all know that. What we know is our obedience to the law of God reveals that we have true faith in Christ. Of course, we know our obedience is inconsistent, but nonetheless, uh, that's the general direction of our lives, is Godward because of that obedience. By God's purposes, the Mosaic law did multiply transgressions. That's explained in Romans, in Romans chapter 5. The idea there is that, um, there are certain things we didn't know were sin, and now you know they're sin because um, it's been given to you in the law. Paul says he would not have known covetousness. He, who would have thought that that was somehow a sin, that you just want what someone else has? Now, if I steal it, we might be able to figure out that that would be wrong. But the fact that I'm wanting what he has or I, or I want what he has, you know, that I'm coveting what he has, who would have ever thought on their own that that was sinful? But then God gives us the law, and I go, oh, wow, that's sin too. I would not have known that. So now my sin, in a sense, is increased. My awareness of sin is increased. The, the, the mosaic law exposes sin. Uh, it's all, it was also brought to show that one is justified by faith apart from works. That one is uh, uh, that one again is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So the law is continually viewed in the book of Romans and explained to us that even though the law is holy and righteous and pure, what it does is it it ends up causing a spotlight to be turned on us to reveal to us how sinful we are. Here is God's standard, and this is how far you are from his standard. You thought you were pretty close, but you're not even in the same ballpark. In fact, you're not even in the stadium. You're out in the parking lot somewhere. That's how far we are. In fact, not only that, there's all these things that are sinful that you're doing. You weren't even aware you were doing them, and here I am telling you that that's sin, that's sin. You're not even thinking about God in the right way. You think that God is like you, or you think God can be bribed. So your view of God is even wrong. So the Mosaic Law served a a very important purpose, to reveal the sinfulness of man, how great that sinfulness is, how large the gap is between us and God, and that if that is the law of God expressed to us in the Law of Moses, how far I am from earning my salvation. We need to understand that the Mosaic law, again, is inoperative and that it is not binding on us. So then we can say that we reject the law of covenant because that's been broken. So when you look at the covenants, there's the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, various covenants that are named in the scripture. And some people don't like the term unconditional, but it's not a bad term. But we would say, like, the Abrahamic covenant is unconditional. What that means is, is that the Uh, Covenant being fulfilled is dependent upon only one party, even though two parties are, the covenant is made between two two groups, God and and then the offspring of of Abraham, right? So, but the the covenant, it being fulfilled, is dependent on only one person, that's God. Now, there's obligations. So if those, uh, so if Israel does not fulfill her obligations, she then by her sin can delay the fulfillment of the covenant, but it doesn't abolish the covenant. It doesn't come to an end. It's going to be brought to fruition. Everything God has promised is going to come true and is going to be realized because it's all dependent upon God. The Mosaic Covenant was different and that it was conditional, as we've already said. You obey, you get blessed. You disobey, you're cursed. That's very simple. And everybody was guilty of disobeying the law and the nation, obviously, as a whole. Hebrews declares, and it speaks of a new covenant. So that's why we talk about the new covenant. That's what New Testament means, it's new covenant. Uh, that's the covenant that we are under. And so he speaks of a new covenant, and he, so when he speaks of the new covenant, Hebrew says he makes the first one obsolete, meaning the law, the Mosaic law, or the, uh, the, the law covenant. The law made nothing perfect. But in Christ, what does the Bible say? All this is in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. We have a better hope, a better covenant, a better prompt. We have better promises, a better sacrifice, better possession, a better life, and a better word. <clears throat> Everything is better, All right. Think of just one of those, better sacrifices. What does that mean? Well, the Old Testament sacrifices, though they were required by God, never removed sin or the stain of sin. They covered sin, but man was still guilty. His sin was still unforgiven. There was a better sacrifice, which is Jesus Christ. And so he came as the perfect God, man living that perfect life. So that when God laid on him, our sin in the same way that you might sacrifice a bull in the old Testament and confess the sins of the people and then the animal would be, would be slaughtered and their sins would be covered basically for a year, got to come again next year and do this again because their sins are not forgiven. With Christ, it's a once-for-all thing. Because he's this perfect man, he's obviously not dying for his own sin. He died for our sin. It's a once-for-all thing. The price has been paid. It's a better sacrifice. It accomplishes what God desires it accomplish, which is our salvation or our redemption. That's how we know. That's how I know I'm going to go to heaven. I, I, in my position before God, I am dressed in the righteousness of Christ. My sin debt has been paid, I have no sin debt. So I'm going to heaven, even, and I hope this doesn't happen, but even if I'm actually committing a sin when I die, I'm going to heaven. Because it's based on what Christ has done, and I'm trusting in that. I'm sure there'll be disappointment all around if I die in the midst of committing sin, but the bottom line is I'm not gonna suddenly lose my salvation because that took place because it's based on what God has has done in Christ through us. And so that's what the New Testament, the New Covenant, is all about and what Hebrews tells us. So that would then mean that the Mosaic Law is not the rule of life for the Christian. So we don't live by those 613 commands. We actually live by, and there's been different counts. Some have said there's 800 uh, imperatives in the New Testament. Others have said that if you look at the imperatives and the principles that we are to live by, it's closer to 8,000. All I know is it's a lot, and it covers everything. And so, and that's what, and that's what we live by. We, we live, that's, God's law is eternal, and he's expressed that to us in the New Testament. So we have an understanding of his expectations, what we are to do, how we are to live, and the changes he's gonna make in us. So the law of Moses, again, was intended to be temporary. We see that in Galatians 3. And again, it was never the basis for justification. It was intended to lead men to Christ, that they may be justified by faith. So it was, the Bible calls it also, it was a tutor. Meaning it was educating me on, my, on, my, on the reality of my status, that I am separated from God. And I'm looking at the law of Moses, and I see the holiness of God and the righteousness of God, and I'll, and I know I don't measure up. And I know I'm supposed to live like this, and this, and this, and this, and, this, and that's the right way to live, I, I can't do that. I should try to do that, but I, I can't fulfill that. I need a power within me to do that. My heart sometimes, is, it just, I, don't, I don't get there. Well, that's the gospel. That's what Christ has done for us. So we'll see more and more as we work our way through Matthew, and it begins next week as we work, look at this, these verses again, that Christ has come and he's fulfilled every aspect of the law. And again, he died on the cross. So the Mosaic Law, then, is entirely rendered inoperative as a rule of life. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So the law of the Spirit of life, the law of Christ, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is the Mosaic Law. For God has done what the law Weakened by the flesh, could not do so again. The law is not evil, the law is good. The flesh, human flesh, is weak. So, because of the weakened flesh, the law could not bring about my salvation. So, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So this righteous requirement of the law, basically it's, it's, a, it's, it's perfection, this moral perfection, uh, mor- moral, moral perfection in the way I behave with the people, the way I view God, the way I worship God, the way I think, all of that. All of that is uh, what the law demands, and that was fulfilled by Christ. Christ fulfilled the law and lived out the law perfectly in our stead and in his righteousness laid himself down to die for us as our substitute, the righteous for the unrighteous. So then when I, again, put my trust in Christ, I am basically now dressed in this robe that is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So when God looks at me, what he sees is what? He sees righteousness. But he doesn't see my righteousness. I have no righteousness. But he sees the righteousness of Christ. The idea behind that, that term, the, the robe of righteousness, What I found out, I don't know if it was every single Jewish wedding, but in many Jewish weddings, at least many, during the time of Christ, uh, the wedding invitation that you would receive, it, it wasn't a card in a mail. It definitely wasn't a text or an email. The invitation, they would send you basically a garment. And this garment is what you would wear to the home uh, where the reception and the wedding and all that was going to be. So then, um, if it was kind of a wealthy man, he would, you know, let's say he's kind of living on top of a hill, and you're coming towards the house on the day of the wedding, they already know who belongs based on because you would have to wear that. That's what you would wear. That was your invitation, so they would see you coming. But what would they see? They would see the robe you're wearing, and that was your basically your ticket in. Uh, and there was that, there would be something unique about the garment. Everybody had the same one, but it was a unique thing, so you just couldn't go down to to the sears or to walmart on the corner in jerusalem to get one like it uh because they didn't have it and they could tell by that and so there was no one no one had to stop you and say you know show me your invitation and your id you were wearing it and you would gain instant access so i'm sure you're aware that when you hear the jokes where people say someone died and went to heaven and they're talking to peter at the gate yeah that doesn't happen just in case you were not you were worried that doesn't happen all right you're going to be ushered into the in into heaven you're be brought into it because you're dressed in the righteousness of Christ. No one has a checkbook book for your name. Thank goodness. <laughs> All right, You don't have to worry about that. All right? you're, you're going to be ushered in. They're already expecting you to come. So as a rule of life, again, the law of Moses was temporary. It came to an end with the death of Moses. So, as I've already said many times, the Bible replaces the law of Moses with the new covenant law or the law of Christ, is the way you would say it. The grace and truth of Jesus Christ supersedes The grace God bestowed through the Mosaic law. John chapter 1, verse 16. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. So Christ has broken the condemning and controlling power of the law. So Paul could say (laughs) of believers, you are not under the law, but under grace. So certainly Paul did not mean you're not under the law of God. What he meant was you're not under the law of Moses but under grace. And that, and so even though we, we um, follow the law of Christ, it's all about grace. right? Even when it comes to the law of Christ, what does God do for us? He gives us his strength to obey his commands. That's the law of grace. That's what he's given us. As Christians, our release from the law, or the Mosaic law, means that the Mosaic law is no longer the judge of people's conduct. It's actually much broader and more specific than that. The age of the Mosaic Law Covenant has come to an end in Christ, so the law has ceased from having a determinative role. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 19, Paul writes, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law. Now notice what he says here. Though not being myself... Under the law. Now, before Paul became a believer, not only was he a rabbi, he was in a particular group of rabbis. This was a group of rabbis that were very zealous, very intelligent, and and their one of their main responsibilities was to develop, and you may have heard pastors use the term defense laws. Jesus refers to them oftentimes as you have heard it said, but I say, or um, We speak of the tradition of the elders. Uh, You heard me talk about the collection of those, which is called the Mishnah. So what that is, is that's where you have the law of of Moses, 613 commands, and then what the Jewish leadership would do, the religious leadership, is they would begin to create uh, uh, another form of laws that would create a fence around the law of Moses. And again, the purpose of that was, if you break one of those laws, it's bad, but because you've broken that fence, you're you are aware you've broken the fence and it stops you in your tracks before you get to actually breaking the law of moses that was that was its purpose the problem is is that by the time jesus comes along the fence laws have were seen as being equal to the law of christ and so there's all all kind of difficulties when that begins to happen it's kind of like how people who might be legalists today um begin to operate that if you don't do certain things you know you're not saved because you don't follow these rules that they've made up uh that you may not find in the bible uh and so that means you're not a believer or whatever you know there used to be a time when you know if, if a guy came to church and your hair touched your ear oh you're boy you are in unrighteousness nah, that's not a thing all right but it was it was for those who were legalistic going back to you know some verse that says uh you know, that long hair is a shame to a man, but it never tells you how long that is. So it's kind of hard to arbitrarily say what well, it means, don't touch your ears. It doesn't mean that. Right? There's not, it's not there at all. But that was, that's what legalists would get into. Um, and I've even known some people who were actually asked to leave a church because the second time they came, first time they were forgiven, I guess, second time they came, the hair was still touching the, air, the ear, they were in clear rebellion to God, and they were asked not to come back until they got their hair cut. I know that sounds like really trivial. It is, and there are many more like that. But that—that—that's what can end up happening, and that's what happened here. So again, Paul makes it clear, though not myself being under the law, he's not under the law of Moses, that I might win those under the law. So those outside the law became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So there, he makes it clear, he's not outside the law of God. I'm not, but I am under the law of Christ. That explains why in the book of Acts. There's this time where, where he's on his way back to Jerusalem and there's always been this conflict with a lot of of the Jews and Paul because of all the rumors about this guy, you know, trying to ruin the law of Moses and teach against these things. He'd become this radical Christian and, and he was a traitor and all these types of things. And so he was given advice once to take some men who had taken a vow and for him to go to the temple and to pay for their, their vow and get haircuts and all this kind of thing. Well, why did he do all that? He didn't have to do that. But he did that so he could gain an audience to talk to him about Jesus Christ. He wasn't being a phony. He was being very respectful of their beliefs in the Mosaic law. It wasn't like he was trying to follow some Buddhist order. But he's following, as they follow the law of Moses, but he wanted to get an audience with these individuals so he could explain how Christ fulfilled the law and give them the gospel. Didn't go real well. They still wanted him dead. Uh, But there were those who did come to Christ as a result of his preaching and teaching. So Paul makes it really clear here, to me, very simple for us to understand. I'm not under the law of Moses. I'm under the law of Christ because I'm never outside the law of God. So again, a written legal code uh, is what we're under. Again, not one of the 613 stipulations as in the Mosaic Law. That doesn't directly bind Christians. But again, we're bound by the law of Christ. And you see that again in 1 Corinthians 9 and Galatians 6. So we've been made free from the law, but liberty does not mean license. There are those that think somehow that because there's no longer the law of Moses, we're free. We've already said, we're not free from the law of God. I still must obey that. So it's not giving me a license to go and sin. That's not in the Bible anywhere. Sometimes there are those who are afraid of that, and that's sometimes what leads to forms of legalism. So in order to offset the danger of, and here's the fancy word, antinomianism, which simply means lawlessness, the scriptures teach that we have not only been delivered from the law, but also joined to another, which is the Christ, who is raised from the dead, that we might what? Bear fruit to God. So we are not without the law of God, but we are under the law of Christ. So freedom from the law should not result in license, but in love. And we are to keep our eyes on Christ as our example and teacher by the Holy Spirit to fulfill his law. So as I mentioned earlier when I made my opening remarks, when it comes to the law of Christ. It is the code of commandments under which we live. Some of the commandments of Christ and his apostles uh, that his apostles gave us are the same as those that Moses gave the Israelites. But this does not mean we're under the law of Moses. We're not under that code. Just like there are some laws that we have here, uh, and they're very similar to maybe the, the laws that govern England, but they're not the same. Just because the laws are the same, we don't follow the laws of England here. We have a distinct set of laws different from there, but there are some that are the same. Some of our laws are the same as theirs, others are different. Again, because some laws are the same, we should not conclude that the codes are the same. So again, we no longer live under the Mosaic law, we live under a new code, the law of Christ. Living under the law of Christ has both positive and negative commands that direct life. Where the scripture does not provide specific commands, it gives divine principles that guide the Christian's walk. So when it comes to, you know, as we pursue eldership here in the church is still working on that whole thing, coming together and looking like it's supposed to. There's not a command. This is, thou shalt have elders. But we see a principle in the scripture. And wherever Paul went, he appointed elders in the churches. Hmm. We also see that there are um, uh, qualifications for those who serve as deacons and a different set of qualifications for those who serve as elders. Much of those, many of the qualifications are the same But there are some differences, because the responsibilities are different. So we recognize that, and so there's more and more churches, regardless of the denomination, who are moving in that direction. Maybe not enough, uh, but they're moving in that direction. The idea of just one pastor kind of serving as a dictator, and then a a, a bunch of yes men serving as deacons, that model, that's that's not biblical. And the reason why we would say that is because that's not the pattern that we see in the scripture. So that's what we follow. So we, again, we look at that. When it comes to the whole idea of the gender things that are going on today and all the trans this and trans that. And as Christians, we say, well, no, there's, there are two genders. Well, where do we get that from? God didn't say, oh, by the way, there's only two genders. But what we get it from is this overwhelming um, mention of male and female in the narrative beginning in Genesis. When God created the animals, he created them, male and female. God created man, male and female. It just, it's over and over and over again. And then what is marriage? Well, we get that from the Bible. We get it from the definition of the book of Genesis all the way through to where Jesus said. In the beginning, what, it says, man, uh, the man shall leave his mom, mother and father, and he shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. And it's always that. So this pattern that we see in the scripture, we realize, okay, that, that is what is normal. That's God is giving us a picture of reality as he intended it. This is what we live by, what we believe, and what we follow. So no matter what individuals say about how they feel, about what they feel on the inside, eh, it doesn't really matter. What does God say? And when we say that, well, that's what we're looking at, is this pattern that we see. So that's why we look for everything really in the Scripture. We really do that. All right? There's, you know, now the Bible has nothing to say about what your favorite football team is. All right? So you can choose whoever you want. But the bottom line is, it, but when it comes to how we watch football, how much we love football, you know what? The Bible actually has something to say. It has something to say about how we, how, how we perform, how we do all these things. But as far as which team, that's up to you, and we would judge your wisdom based on the choices that you make. Uh, but that would not be a biblical standard. That would be one that is purely subjective, uh, to say the least. So again, where the scripture does not provide specific commands, it gives divine principles that guide the Christian's walk. We are to walk in love, we are to glorify God in all things, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So while Moses doesn't legally bind, or the Mosaic law doesn't legally bind Christians, it does remain in indirectly authoritative, it is profitable, and it is instructive. So we're not just saying, yeah, just disregard it, because some do that as well. There are some Christians through time who said that oh, you don't even need the Old Testament. In fact, even um, a guy up in Atlanta, uh, what's his name, said that kind of recently, that we seem to disengage from the Old Testament. We just don't even need it. Uh, that's just untrue. We, we need that. Very much so. Um, so he's just clearly wrong on that. So let me, uh, let me illustrate this in, in this way, and we'll be done. So when it comes to, again the Mosaic Law's lasting significance, we want to make sure that we look through it through the lens that Jesus gives to us so we know how to interpret what we're looking at. Again, some laws are unchanged before and after Christ. Others are kind of bent in various ways, and I'll explain that to you in just a moment. And we find that Jesus' coming maintains uh, the law, transforms the law, and annuls various laws. So, three quick examples. He maintains a law, so when it comes to these things, murder, adultery, theft, coveting. Christ maintains the law's essence without any changes from the new to the old. Obeying those laws would have looked the same then as they do today. Number two, when the Bible talks about in the law of Moses about where Moses charges them not to muzzle an ox while it's threshing, we don't really have a thing for that today, that's not a command for you and me. Most of us don't even have an ox. So we wouldn't have to worry about it. But the Bible then by extension helps us with this and tells us then that when the ox that you've hired to teach the scripture, the pastor, that you are to pay him. You feed him and you fed me well. Um. uh, That's going on. But the idea is, is that by extension we see how that is applied to us today and we see that principle. So that law then would be bent in that way. All right, then there is the transformation. So, fulfilling the law like God's charge to observe the Sabbath or Moses' directions on capital punishment, well, that's transformed. Uh, we're, we are not obligated to, to obey the Sabbath laws because we don't worship, we don't even worship on the Sabbath. That's, that was yesterday. All right, now, you can, if you want to call Sunday the Lord's Day, that's fine. I have no problem with that. I don't, but that's all right. It's not a biblical thing. So, it is our tradition. All right, Christians, it's the tradition to gather on the first day of the week, so it's probably the best day to do that. But again, we see that pattern in the scripture that the believers gather the first day of the week to worship the Lord, and that's what we do. Uh, we don't follow the, the laws about the Sabbath day. They, they're not applicable. So technically, if you want to work, like if you want to go home today and mow the lawn, you can't do that. You're free to do that. Probably good for you to do other things uh, because other people are watching and they might have the understanding you do But that's not a day of rest, per se. It's not. We actually find our rest in Christ, and we can get into all that later when it comes to various things. But the bottom line is is that that we do set aside a day to worship the Lord uh, and to focus on him, and that's why we gather on Sundays to do what we do. And then, of course, there are some laws that are annulled, and that's simple. There, There used to be some foods that were unclean, and now they're clean. Remember now, so the eating of pork and all that kind of stuff, that was never, the Bible never says it's unhealthy. It says they're unclean. Huge difference. All right, so it's not a dietary magical wand that, that if you don't eat pork, you'll never get cancer or what have you. Something else is probably going to determine whether you get cancer or not, just not the eating of pork. Of course, I would say make sure your pork is well done, but nonetheless... Um, the idea there is that that's just been annulled. We, we, don't, we don't have to just receive everything with thankfulness. I know I do. I uh, you know when people say, hey, what do you want to eat? I go, that's my problem. I like everything. Uh, but I do receive everything with thanksgiving. Now, obviously, we would still talk about gluttony and how that would be wrong. At the same time, we have celebrations of food. It's not a problem. You just can't celebrate every day with food. All right, so that's, that's how we are to understand the law. So remember, again, we are never not under the law of God. That is uh, obligatory for all of us, whether you're a child, a teenager, a young adult, senior citizen. We are all under the law of God, and we are commanded by God to keep his law. The law of God is revealed to you and I through the law of Christ. That would be the New Testament. We have an understanding of law from the Old Testament as well. And we understand that the law is authoritative as we look at the law of Moses, though we are no longer under that because it's been fulfilled in Christ and by Christ and through Christ. And so then when we begin to work our way through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount and then in the life of Christ, we will see how Christ speaks about the law. And that would give us a better understanding of this topic as well as the obligations we have to live in obedience to the law of Christ. So hopefully, hopefully that would be clear, and so that as, as we get back to uh, the words, remember that when Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish the law, that rumor was starting because he spoke often against the way that they understood the law, the way they interpret the law, and the way they apply the law. And so he's going he wants to open their eyes to understand the law of God, and in particular, its expression in the law of Moses. So they will then once again see their need is Christ, And that they are not going to be able to attain the righteousness required for salvation or required for entrance into heaven. The bottom line for you and I is, no matter how well you may understand the New Testament, and no matter how much effort you may make to try to obey the law of Christ, you will never be able to work yourself into a position to enter into heaven. You will never be judged by God where he would say that your good works outweigh your bad. You're already behind, you can never catch up because the standard still is perfection. In fact, the standard is the kind of righteousness that Jesus possessed. And none of us can attain that on our own. It is impossible. The good news is, the righteousness of Christ that he possesses, he is willing to give to you and to me for believing in Christ. I I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more sinful I realize I've been in my life. I am so grateful. Because I don't know, I don't know how, you know, if you want to talk about hell and degrees of hell, I don't know how, how, how all of that works out in detail. All I know is I'd be on the wrong end of the stick, so to speak. But because of God and his graciousness, right, overwhelming graciousness. If I think about it this way. I think about my kids and my grandkids. And I think about how much I love them. God loves me more than I love them. Just to be honest, I, that's, that's amazing. If you think about how much you love your kids or your grandkids, I mean, it would be kind of hard to determine how much love that is. You would, it would be difficult for you to express what, kind of, what you would not do for them, what you would not sacrifice for them. And that's how God loves us. That is mind-blowing, to say the least. Absolutely mind-blowing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your goodness to us, and we thank you, Lord that we are not under the law of Moses, because if we are, we would all stand here today condemned for all of eternity. And Father, we are grateful for Christ and all that he's done. I ask, Lord, that you would cause us to think about these things, to meditate on these things. Father, that as believers, our hearts would continue to grow in gratitude. And that, Father, for any here this morning that are unbelievers, we pray, Lord, that they would be struck with a sense of the righteous requirements that you have for entrance into heaven and the impossibility of anyone ever being able to attain to that level of righteousness and that we desperately need not just help but an absolute miracle to transform us into the image of the individual that would be able to go to heaven and that's all accomplished because of Christ and through Christ. And we pray, Lord, they would see their need of Christ and believe. Thank you, Father, again for your daily grace in our life. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.